You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Future of Pharmacy Podcast, featuring the innovators transforming medication management. The Future of Pharmacy Podcast is brought to you by OmniCell. Now here's our host, Ken Perez. Hi everyone, I'm Ken Perez. Thanks for joining us. Health systems are constantly being challenged to ensure IV preparations are prepared safely and accurately while complying with increasingly complex regulations. As a result, many rely on 503B outsourcing pharmacies to provide the vast majority of their pre-mixed compounded sterile products. But as product shortages and pricing fluctuations in the supply chain become more acute, use of 503B facilities actually can put more pressure on pharmacy staffs and budget. Joining us today to discuss this are pharmacy leaders who met those challenges by going against the trend by insourcing their sterile compounding with a twist. I'd like to welcome to the program Joe DiCabellis, Senior Director of Pharmacy Services for the University of Maryland Medical System and the University of Maryland Medical Center, and Jen Kogan, Sterile Compounding Pharmacy Manager for the University of Maryland Medical Center. Welcome, Joe and Jen. Thanks, Ken. We really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Absolutely. Thank you, Ken. Looking forward to the conversation. It's great to have you. So let's get acquainted. First, Joe, tell us about the University of Maryland Medical System and the patient populations you serve. Sure. Yeah, the University of Maryland Medical System is dedicated really to the to all the patients in the state of Maryland. We have 12 facilities positioned around the state centered by our academic medical center, the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore. The 12 acute hospitals are supported by over 250 physician practices and clinics, and that amounts to about 500,000 emergency visits, one and a half million outpatient visits, and over 130,000 hospital admissions every year. Uh, We specialize in, at the downtown center in trauma, we're a worldwide known level one trauma center, a transplant and oncology, but we have other specialties around around the state as well. So we provide, of course, the full array of hospital-based services. We're about a $5 billion corporation. So we're one of the largest corporations in Maryland and we employ over 30,000 individuals. Some of the things that we've been focusing on here at the medical system, obviously COVID is front and center still for us right now. We partnered with the state of Maryland to take on significant challenges in in dealing with this virus. We opened a field hospital, was the longest running field hospital in the country, uh, where we converted a convention center into, with the help of FEMA, a field hospital that had the capacity to handle over 250 patients. We maxed out our census at about 60. We built a pharmacy in a concession stand uh, that was licensed by the Board of Pharmacy to serve those patients in the hospital. In addition, we had large-scale mass vaccination operations, one at the home stadium of the Baltimore Ravens, where we vaccinated over 250,000 Marylanders. Other things that are going on is construction. Our system partnered with the state of Maryland and the county of Prince George to build a brand new hospital that we opened in the middle of this pandemic in June of 2021, located in Southern Maryland. So those are the kind of the major operations that have been going on, Ken, in the recent past. You've got quite an enterprise there, Joe. So Joe, let's talk about pharmacy's role within the organization. How are pharmacy services organized to support patient care? Yeah, so here at the Downtown Academic Center, I have overall responsibility for both inpatient and outpatient. We have a very robust 
retail and specialty pharmacy network that handles all of those outpatient needs once patients leave the hospital. Inpatient, we have the full variety of clinical pharmacy services where we do a lot of prescribing, a lot of pharmacokinetic dosing, et cetera, and dispensing. The dispensing end of our operation is as automated as any department could be. We use cabinets throughout our system and throughout our medical center with over 215 locations having cabinets for us to distribute meds. Our annual budget is about $150 million, so we are one of the largest departments within our hospital. The distribution model is fully decentralized using those cabinets. We have very little dispensing on a per-dose basis coming out of our pharmacy satellite. In addition, we use automation in our sterile compounding to enhance the safety of the products that we prepare, as well as have consistent preparation steps from all of our team members. Some initiatives that we have going on is really to become more of a cohesive system. We meet as the pharmacy directors around the system meet regularly to discuss areas of common interest, and we're looking to grow that piece of the organization. We provide very few centralized pharmacy services to our system right now. We have a system-level pharmacy and therapeutics committee and some system-level clinical functions, but we are looking down the road to enhance that and expand the types of services that we provide throughout our system and potentially include sterile compounding in that. Thanks, Joe. Now, Jen, you built and oversee the medical center's highly successful sterile compounding operations. Talk about what that entails. Yeah, I was very lucky to be part of this initiative from the ground up. So we got to see a brand new pharmacy being built to the robots going in. So some of my responsibilities, I work very closely with the engineering team that helps maintain the robots, as well as the quality teams and operational teams that help us to make sure that our production and our inventory is upkept. So my personal role in inventory management, my team oversees, make sure we're requesting what we need, our demand. We are taking care of inventory, rotating it through and distributing really through the hospital for use. Majority of the items that we make entail a lot of the critical care areas. So for example, we make rocuronium syringes. Our biggest customer for that is anesthesia. We also make items like vasopressin, which is primarily distributed to our critical care sites and our critical care units to really support those teams to make sure we have medications on hand and kind of bypassing the instability of supplies from outsourcers and having this in-house helps us support and foresee any shortages really that are outside of our control, such as drug shortages, especially nowadays with fluid shortages and other supplies. So we can definitely better anticipate and be prepared to really accommodate the ever-changing environment that's really out of our control. Well, that's a very significant operation you have there. What goes into the decisions on what you purchase versus what you make on site? How do you do that? I know that initially we went through and just have seen what we were outsourcing from 503B companies. We looked at what the robots are able to make on their system, in their softwares and their hardwares. And then we made an informed decision, if you will, based on cost, based on the most impact, what we would insource in-house. Obviously, we still outsource a couple of items if it's out of scope of the robotics team to be able to make it. So that's kind of where we are. With time, as our practice evolves, as clinical guidelines change, we've actually 
ended up taking items off that list and putting new items on. So it's kind of an ever-changing dynamic of based on really truly need and as things come up. It was a significant ask of administration to support my vision for this program. And I was asking for not only the money to enter into this contract, but we also needed about a half a million dollar upgrade to our clean room if we were going to make this go forward. And so obviously at the front of my mind was the money saving component of this. Obviously I'm, I'm interested in safety and consistency as well, but I had to prove to administration that this would pay for itself and more. So I worked with a catalog of items that they had data on that we could kind of choose from. And I compared that to the items that we were spending the most amount of money on, on the 503B side. And to come up with a, a top 10, so to speak, of the biggest gap in what we are paying with 503B and what we would be paying to insource it ourselves to show administration that this would very quickly be able to pay for itself. And so that was, I think, an important piece of how we got started. And then, as Jen mentioned, we constantly modify that. New products come out from FDA-approved manufacturers, better opportunities avail to us from insourcing things, and we do modify the products that we're making. We'll be talking more about your interactions with the administration a little bit later. Joe, let's go back in time a couple of years prior to your insourcing program. What were some of the clinical, operational, and business challenges that you were facing then? Yeah, so I've been here about six and a half years. When I first got here, I think from a business standpoint, one thing I noticed was what I considered to be excessive spend on, on 503B. Um, that was very important to me because I saw opportunities there to save money without compromising safety or operations, frankly. So that was something that I was challenged with by administration was looking for some cost saving things. I mean, besides that, though, you know, shortages, although they weren't quite as bad as they are today, they were still something to be considered. And as well, you had failures of some 503B companies that was challenging us as well. Um, what we found was that with 503B, they generally use one vendor as the source for their base drugs. That vendor has a problem, but then the 503B has a problem. So we were constantly moving from one 503B vendor to another when a product disruption would occur. And that led to challenges as well, because sometimes the kind of competition wasn't capable of picking up additional business, and then it's falling back on us to compound things. So I think the sterile product piece of our operation was a very high concern, almost from the day I walked in the door, based on the fact that every time you change, you know, you need to make changes in your electronic medical records, notifications may have to go out to clinicians. There's a whole bunch of work involved when you switch from, let's say, a 503B compounded product to something that you make under a hood, or you ask a nurse to reconstitute and push. And all of those scenarios we were dealing with, and it was getting quite complicated. I think I have a great example of kind of the struggles that we had with 503B companies, especially during COVID. I don't know if I can attribute it necessarily to what we were experiencing to that, but Probably so. One of the items that we were looking to insource was hydromorphone. We were purchasing it from a vendor and all of a sudden our supply was cut off, right? That's kind of how it happens. And our demand for hydromorphone was incredibly high. We had a high volume of COVID patients and we were using an exorbitant amount, more than normal. So we were able to actually 
it was fortunate timing. We helped to do a study when we actually had data coming back. So we were able to jump in with the robotics team and really support our staff, which we were short on for compounding and produce initially like short dated hydromorphone bags, then extended dating hydromorphone bags. I mean, we were producing, oh my gosh, probably couple hundred bags a week of hydromorphone, which as you can imagine, producing controlled substances, the amount of accountability, the amount of um, paperwork that has to exchange hands, and then just the sheer amount of doses that we were able to make and, you know, support the team on our end was really impactful where being short-staffed, we we're still able to provide for our patients pretty seamless care and people didn't notice it as much, except obviously my team did, but the rest of the department fared pretty well. That was a great, I think, example of how having something in-house like this can really be amended and changed within reason, obviously, to support the ever-changing environment. You're listening to the Future of Pharmacy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Paris, joined today by Joe DeCabellis, and Jen Kogan of the University of Maryland Medical System. Now, Joe, you'd obviously reached a tipping point. What options did you explore to regain control of the drug supply chain? We knew we wanted to be less reliant on the 503B industry, so that left a couple of options. I was well aware of IV robotic products that were out in the market and had looked at some at a previous hospital. So robotics was, was on my mind. I didn't think it was going to be feasible for us to bring all that compounding in-house with manual preparation. Manual preparation makes me nervous from a quality and consistency standpoint. And clearly what we're seeing today, although I certainly wasn't forecasting this back then, but personnel challenges. You know, we're having a real struggle with pharmacy technicians, as every other hospital is. And when you're relying on the pharmacy technicians for this part of the process, and all of a sudden you lose 20, 25% of your staff you know, then that's going to challenge that whole thing. So I I wish I could say I was thinking that 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 was possible, but I certainly wasn't predicting that. But I knew that we do have turnover. We we are in a large city. People do move in and out of large cities, and we do have a turnover. And I was worried about that and not having the people to do that type of compounding. So I knew we needed some type of assistance with robotics. It came down then to which company and which process and the RISE program where you basically produce a quantity of products for a price. And so I really love that concept because it took the pressure of scheduling and personnel off of us, but left us in charge of signing off on quality, initialing labels ourselves. So we were responsible for the final product, but didn't have to worry about the personnel aspects of it. And that was really important to me as well, because we do have most of our staff rotating through numerous areas. And in my mind, for this insourcing to work most efficiently, people have to be doing it all day, every day. That's not our general model. And we didn't really want to go to that because the problem that that presents is if that person leaves, you have a large hole to fill and it might take quite some time to get personnel trained and and up to speed to get the proper throughput. So the RISE program became extremely interesting to me. We actually visited a site that had purchased robots, but I was fully on board with the RISE program. And as we talked with the team about which direction we should go in, we all agreed on on insourcing, we all agreed on robotics, and we all agreed that the RISE program to help us manage all this 
was the right thing to do. Yeah. And in general, from the inception of the program to current state, we've definitely evolved and learned quite a bit as we've grown with the program since 2018. So it's been a very interesting experience. We've done a lot of partnering and I think a lot of growing together. We've done studies together. Obviously, we're delivering quite an array of drugs from syringes to bags of various sizes and really spanning different types of services from pediatrics and like I mentioned before, to critical care to our ORs. Part of the whole concept is we have four IV robots. They're non-hazardous, so only non-hazardous medications are being made and drawn up in these technologies. From the staffing perspective, our role, as Joe mentioned, we outsource our technician manpower to the RISE team, but from the UMMC perspective, we supply the pharmacist, we supply the drugs, we run about 15 hours a day, Monday through Thursday. We're at full capacity, we're about 3,000 doses for that time period. So that's about a 750 doses a day, which is quite a bit, showing the cost savings that we've seen with the program and working with Joe. We were actually able to expand even our pharmacist coverage for checking and processing all these drugs. So we've definitely, I think, have come such a long way and see such a big value in this program. As we evolve the program, we try to optimize and look at, we don't have traditional PARs. We are able to produce things on demand and really kind of tightly control and manage our inventory and our data. And if you ever look at our statistics and our finances and I know how it all pans out. A lot of that contributes to our cost savings, that tight control and not throwing medications out and not being susceptible to overpurchasing or underpurchasing. So it's really kind of in line with the demand of our institutional needs and our patient needs. And obviously, considering how many doses we make, we do quite a bit of testing. So we follow chapter USP 71. And on average, we test about 80 samples a month. And obviously those are in line with our state regulatory bodies. And again, USP chapter 71, we have about a 99.8% pass rate. Um, so there's a system that tracks failed doses. So in considering how much we make, that's a pretty good pass rate. And in the past four years, um, we had about four sample failures and it happens. It's not I don't want to ever mislead and say it. it's 100%, nothing ever happens, but we have a good robust system of quarantining and releasing of product and following up to make sure that things like that don't perpetuate and happen. Obviously, that involves staff training, that involves following up, doing a root cause analysis of there's ever a sterility failure. So we've definitely learned quite a bit and evolved the program in various ways. So it's been a great learning experience personally for me. And I learned a lot from Joe and their finance team about finances and tracking how new programs are implemented and justified. So that's been that's been really neat. Those are really impressive results. And you guys have had a, such an interesting journey. So for those who just kind of started out on this, what would be the very first steps from your experience? What are the very first steps that you guys took? The first thing is how we got to Jen. I think that was one of the first steps. I knew we needed a dedicated leader to have this program be successful. Jen was in a medication safety role, um, but had filled in as a manager in various areas of our department over the years because her skill set is so wide. She could go from being a med safety pharmacist today to overseeing oncology 
clinic and satellite tomorrow. And so we thought she would be ideal for this project. And we elevated her to manager um, and basically handed it to her. And without her leadership, there is no way that we would have gotten to where we are today with this program. I think having someone like Jen who is dedicated to this has her eyes on it all day, every day, was critical to getting this started and getting it to where we are today. So I think that was the most important first step. And then it was, again, looking at products that were uh, we were buying in high volume and that where we saw an opportunity to save significant amounts of money so that we would have quick wins. I think that was very important to show that we could make a quick win and justify that investment as early on as possible. I really appreciate that, Joe. And from my perspective, when I took that responsibility, I wanted to make sure that I took it very seriously. And one of the biggest things and struggles that I've always seen is we're constantly either running out of products supplied by 503B companies, or we're tossing them in just bucketfuls um, and our refrigerators are full of vancomycins and we don't have anywhere to put anything. So my goal was always to see how can we best optimize our inventory. So I did quite a bit of legwork in terms of our EMR data analysis, our dispensing, seeing how our system definitely helps a lot to understand how your distribution system works in your organization and kind of using all those things and putting together a program where, again, like I mentioned before, we're responding to on-demand products versus having these traditional PARs where you're kind of either over or underproducing inevitably just because it's an ever-changing environment where a critical care hospital, we're so susceptible to the seasons and whatever else is going on in the environment, the pandemic surprise. So It's definitely been an interesting process of developing this type of inventory management system. So I was really fortunate to be able to do that. As we went through, it was a very interesting process from even implementing syringes and the feedback that we received. We tried to involve safety. So I'll give you an example of uh, rocuronium and implementation. We went to the ORs. They were a little apprehensive, as, as everybody is, even though it's still in a syringe. Tried to really get them on board and ask them for feedback on label designs and how are they perceiving the products. And then when we thought we were good to go, they were like, oh, gosh, the naming is, I wish we had more naming on the label. So now we have rocuronium labeled in multiple places. So we're trying to really be receptive to the end users and the people who are really vested in those products as well. So kind of getting those teams involved and getting all that feedback from them was really essential for them to be really accepting of our products. And when we implemented new syringes for the ORs later on, they were a lot more receptive to it and a lot more open. And especially they trusted the system that we could continue supplying their syringes, their products that they're used to using instead of using vials, following best practice. So I thought that was... um, That was definitely a great experience for me to be able to reach out to those teams. In terms of growth, we did start out with about eight protocols and getting our feet wet in May of 2018. We had some challenges. It wasn't smooth sailing, but as we have overcome them, we're at 18 protocols now. And again, we've added and removed protocols as time went on. So it's really, it's really a dynamic kind of system. Well, that growth is really impressive. And those are some amazing accomplishments. 
Now, Joe, let's go back to supply chain certainty. How are you progressing toward that goal? Yeah, so a couple of things around that, Ken. We're still using 503B companies, of course, but to a much lesser extent. One thing we've been able to do since we're less reliant is to consolidate the companies that we're using, where two companies basically probably have 80% of our business. That just makes life a lot easier for us in terms of different shipping times, different cost bases, et cetera. So cutting down on the number of 503Bs we're using has been one major uh, benefit uh, of doing this. I mean, the other thing on from a supply chain standpoint is that the robots are capable of utilizing multiple manufacturers-based products so that when one company goes short, you know, we can fairly easily switch to another company's product to make our compounds. So that has made the, the shortage is much more tolerable by having them more under our control rather than being reliant on how a vendor manages a shortage. So I think that's been one of the, the bigger benefits for us as well. You know, we're, we're producing, Ken, about 50% of all of our uh, non-hazardous adult sterile products are being produced by this insourcing program now. And, and Jen mentioned the numbers of over 700 per day, which is pretty amazing. So we set a target when you talk about finance, we wanted to achieve a million dollars in savings above and beyond all expenses for this program within that first year. Uh, we didn't quite make it in, in one year, but I think it was that September, which is about 15 months from when we started, that we hit that million mark. And now we're well beyond the million dollars uh, in savings. What, what was interesting about that, too, was what Jen did that we counted as part of that savings. So it wasn't just a matter of, you know, uh, the cost differential per product times the number of products we made. It was also how we uh, attack the inventory and the par levels of these products in various locations around the organization. So Jen was focused on making sure that min and max levels were at appropriate levels. And so the way we kind of calculate our savings is that we take what we were spending on the 503B compounded product versus what we are spending on the internally compounded product and take that delta. And so that incorporates both the obvious uh, material cost differences as well as changes that we've made in PAR levels because that is truly the net savings to the institution. And that's what we wanna convey is how much work has been done, not only in bringing in the in-source program, but how much work Jen did to, to modify inventory uh, amounts in the various, to get them at a more appropriate level. And the combination of those two is what has us well over a million dollars. The bulk, the bulk of it is attributed to the actual compounding and robotics piece, but that inventory changes that we made, you know, is not an in, insignificant component. Absolutely. And then we also focus a lot on cost avoidance as well. So like I mentioned before, we focus on dynamic inventory. So what we consider is, you know, if you had your traditional PARs, you would just kind of make the same thing, run of the mill every week or, you know, whatever your pattern of production is. And so what we were able to do is because we can respond to demand, we found that by even not producing certain items at a certain quantity, we're able to find cost savings in avoiding waste, right? So anything that we produce and we are not chucking down the trash, shoot, that's considered savings for us. We're not purchasing as much supplies. We're not purchasing as much 
drug to make these compounds with. So that also reflects back on our savings and part of the program um, of contributing to the overall vision. So it's definitely something that we've worked through and we're able to kind of like, I think a novel way to approach inventory management. Obviously this team is very aware of what's going on, but again, we had a rocuronium shortage, for example, and we were running out of vials this time. So, and it wasn't just one manufacturer, it was multiple manufacturers and we saw it coming, you know, the way we manage our vial inventory, we have several weeks on hand. So we, we saw it coming. So we were able to quickly switch and say, okay, reach out to our other 503B partners and get syringes and, you know, really provide uninterrupted service. And as soon as um, our vial shortage resolved, we were able to smoothly go back and use our internal production to keep supplying our patients with the protocols that they need to use in various settings. So it's, it's been a very good dynamic kind of process for us. So we are definitely able to better anticipate shortages with how we approach inventory. And honestly, sometimes it's they're unavoidable. There's nothing we can do, but anticipation is a big part of being able to successfully and safely manage those things. Because when we're stuck by surprise, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of on the fly decisions that may or may not always be the safest thing to do. So having that foresight is incredibly, incredibly helpful. And really it helps our, not only our patients, but our staff as well, where our staff isn't compounding an extra vancomycin, everyone on shortage. We don't have the staff to compound an extra 300 bags a week of vancomycin. I, I mean, I don't think anybody does. So it's definitely helps us to shield our team and our staff from the uncertainties of the market. Yeah, Jen, those are some great lessons learned. Now, Joe, I'm assuming you needed to get leadership's buy-in prior to starting the program. We talked about that earlier, talking with administration. So in closing, maybe you can share how they reacted to the program's success, these great numbers that you guys have shared. Sure, Ken. Let me start with how we got the initial approval. I think, you know, I'm very conservative in what I bring forward, especially if it's something that needs resources or financial investment. So we do a a huge amount of due diligence in the pharmacy with our team to make sure that anything that we want to bring forward to administration, we are confident, very confident that we're going to have success. So we aren't bringing things every week to administration. We are very prudent in what we bring forward. So we felt very confident bringing this to them. Uh, the numbers spoke for themselves. We were very confident that we'd exceed expectations. And I had developed some I guess I'll call it administrative capital over the couple of years I had been here with other projects we had brought forward. So anything I had brought forward had panned out exactly as you know we had hoped and predicted. And so I think the administration developed a comfort level with things that were coming from the pharmacy. So uh, it actually was fairly easy to get this going just based on the results that we had had in the past. And then as we kept them up to date, which we keep them up to date regularly on this project, they, of course, were very, very pleased, not from just the financial benefit, which was a large piece of this, but also the technology advance. You know, we're an academic medical center. We're on the cutting edge of many things that go on uh, around the world. In fact, you may have heard of the world's first pig heart transplant that occurred several months ago that happened right here. So, 
they are always looking to support that kind of innovation. And so it, this kind of fit right in with the mission of the medical school medical center partnership. So that was also, you know, an important part of this. And I think what, what epitomizes this the most is how they hold up the pharmacy at all of our managers meetings and such. They hold us up for the cost savings that we produce, for the re revenue that we produce in our retail and specialty pharmacies, um, and hold us as an example of how to do things that not only improve patient care and patient safety, but help the hospital's bottom line as well. Well, kudos to you too. Those are some excellent examples, Joe, that you've shared and a good way to wrap up today's program. I wanna thank our guests, Joe DeCubilis and Jen Kogan of the University of Maryland Medical System. And I'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for joining us today. For the Future of Pharmacy podcast and for OmniCell, I'm Ken Perez. Thanks for listening. This has been the Future of Pharmacy podcast, featuring the innovators transforming medication management. Until next time, don't get stuck in the clouds. The Future of Pharmacy podcast is brought to you by OmniCell. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>